1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Tim Thurston, one of the hosts on the network, and today I'm talking to Professor Lisa Gilman and Dr. John Fenn about their new book, Handbook for Folklore and Ethnomusicology Fieldwork, recently published by Indiana University Press. While I was preparing for the podcast, I was immediately impressed by how versatile this book seems to be and how accessible it is. It is full of exercises and tips and combines their experiences conducting fieldwork both in the US and abroad, online and in-person, and in both academic and public-facing settings. As a matter of fact, I'm already recommending it to my students who are about to embark on their first fieldwork. Our conversation focused on both the book itself, but also on issues beyond the book, including approaches to pseudonyms and the way that the pandemic has naturalized new ways of communicating and conceptualizing the field. It was one of my favorite conversations so far, a really enjoyable and lively conversation that I hope you will enjoy as well. Thank you. Lisa is Professor of Folklore Studies and Public Humanities in George Mason University's English Department and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of American Folklore. She has conducted fieldwork in Malawi and the United States and has published several books on topics including UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage, Politics in Malawi, and the listening habits of US Armed Services members. John is currently Head of Research and Programs for the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress, uh, has a PhD in folklore and ethnomusicology from Indiana University, and has done field work in Malawi, China, and the United States, and has worked in both physical and digital research sites. Lisa, John, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, So everyone comes to our disciplines with from my from my mind the most interesting stories so what are your folklore and ethnomusicology origin stories
2: so i'll start um So my origin story is that I was an undergraduate student at the University of Oregon many, many, many years ago, and I took a class in political science in my first semester, and that was it. I became obsessed with politics and became a political activist and was really, really, like, excited to change the world and... um, took political science classes and then kind of make a long story short in my junior year in the fall, I I had spent the summer in Senegal and I had a long history in Africa, but it was my first time back in Africa um, since I'd been a child. I came back and in the fall, I took introduction to folklore with none other than Sharon Sherman. And and I was blown away. And first of all, I got like a hundred percent on my tests and I can say I was not getting a hundred percent in my other classes. And so Sharon kind of pulled me aside and she said, you're getting a hundred percent people don't get a hundred percent in my class. And I was like, well, it's, it's easy. It, it's, it's not hard. And she's like, well, that's not everybody's experience. And then it kind of clicked. I was like, oh, I'm getting something. There's something that's making it easy it, it? it just feels really intuitive to me. And then I had this kind of major revelation that I was interested in politics, but I wasn't so interested in studying the political structures and the stuff of political science. What I was really interested in is the people on the ground and how people experience what's going on politically and how they participate, respond to politics um, from from kind of more of a grassroots level. And so my brain burst and there was no major in in folklore. So I had to finish my major in political science. I did a folklore and ethnic studies certificate and the rest is history. And ironically, I mean, I was very young then. And if you look at my research, it's kind of crazy how much my research is about folklore and politics from the grassroots level. And so it's kind of um, now that I'm older, it's kind of surprising to me that I figured that out so young. I didn't really know that I figured out my life track, but I had.
0: So I still haven't figured out my life track, but um, <clears throat> I will say that my I stumbled into the discipline of folklore uh, several years after finishing my undergraduate degree, which was in anthropology. Um, and I've always played music since a young age, so I, I kind of had this interest in in creative expression and culture and community. And after going through an anthropology degree in a very strange psychological anthropology department, I didn't think anthropology was going to get me where I wanted to go. Um, it took four years off between undergrad and grad school, worked in the Bay Area, but always wanted to go back to grad school. I, I, I knew that. I just didn't know in what Um One year, I got up the sort of gumption to go to the Berkeley Public Library and look at grad school um, program guides, you know, these big books you actually had to pull down off the shelf and flip through. Um, I found uh, performance studies, um, and then I found folklore as a sort of heading in this thing. I was like, what is that? And I started reading up on the programs and the the, basic description, and I thought, oh, this is something that might allow me to kind of get at what I think is interesting about why people make music together. I wasn't interested in this sort of the how. I didn't want to do like musicology or something like that. I wanted to know why people felt compelled to to make meaning. Um, And I was kind of interested in home recording at that point and tape trading and these sort of DIY grassroots networks. Um, uh, And so ended up um, sort of auditing a class at UC Berkeley in the folklore program there. Met a really fen- phenomenal visiting scholar um, from 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 Egypt. He, he does narrative work. Um, he introduced us to Dick Bauman's verbal artist performance text, um, and so I read that, and my mind was blown. I was like, "Wait, this is there's a way to think about interaction with audience and meaning making, and that's where the thing happens, not in the notes or you know, or in the, in the in the text itself." Um, so I quickly. Um, Then gathered up some applications, uh, applied to IU, um, got in, and uh, had never heard the word ethnomusicology. I didn't even know how to spell it. Um, But in the third week of my first term there, someone said, oh, this faculty member thinks you might be interested in ethnomusicology. And so then I got pulled into that. So stumbled into one discipline, ended up (laughs) studying the other one. Again, at IU, they're kind of conjoined, right, in in many ways. So I benefited from that sort of weirdness. And that's how I ended up doing what I do now.
2: And if I could just add, because John and I both cross both folklore and ethnomusicology, and it's a little bit accidental for both of us. And for me, it was because when I went to do my dissertation research, I wasn't planning on doing research on music and dance, but I ended up doing research on dance in Malawi. And so then it made sense for me to take ethnomusicology classes. And because IU has both folklore and ethno, I was taking both classes and i started to go to sem and afs and because um african uh, african studies is much less developed in the folk in folklore in the united states than it is in ethnomusicology that i found i had a much more of a intellectual community in ethnomusicology in terms of people doing work um, on the african continent and so as a result i've been even though i'm a folklorist a lot of my publications um, and my colleagues and collaborations have been with people in ethnomusicology.
1: I think that's great. I think uh, I love the origin stories in general. It's one of my favorite parts of doing this podcast. But uh, especially this answer that you've given is sort of I, I think really sort of shines interesting lights on our disciplines and sort of the way we move within them and the way that we study. And I love it. Um, so you've created this handbook on. Fieldwork for folklore and ethnomusicology, and to me, sort of admired as I am in early careerness, um, writing textbooks feels like real yeoman's work in academia. And I'm just curious, uh, sort of, can you tell us about how this book came to be, and maybe how your respective backgrounds uh, in public/slash applied and then academic folklore and ethnomusicology manifest in the making of this book?
2: Yeah, I can start. So I had been teaching fieldwork at the University of Oregon every year for many years. And um, the textbooks that we had were all very old. And so even though a lot of the methodological stuff was very relevant, you know, they would talk about cassette tapes, and there was no mention of of um, any new te- things that we would consider new technologies, like emailing or even the re- you know the, anything about recording was really old, and there was no understanding of how much we're using technology now to do all sorts of stuff. And so I was, and a lot of the methodological stuff um, wasn't so up to date in terms of thinking about issues around gender and race and sexuality and disability and various things and so I was just cobbling together these syllabi and drawing from all different disciplines and um, really just doing a lot of lecturing and trying to kind of make the course into what using the resources that I could kind of put together to make the course do what I wanted the course to do. And one problem we have in folklore is we don't have um, we don't have kind of a set of textbooks so a lot of us when we start teaching we we have to kind of reinvent the wheel over and over and over my first job was in at the university of toledo in women's and gender studies and i had never taken a class it was women's and gender studies but they handed me these like amazing textbooks which both allowed me to learn and also to teach um, and so i had this idea of like how valuable textbooks were and i was really frustrated that um, I wasn't finding what I wanted for my own class. so so the the impetus was really that I wanted a textbook to use it in my own class. And I figured if I was struggling that other people were as well. Um, and then, so it was my I initiated it, but the you know the part that um I really didn't feel so so um that I was really capable of doing is talking a lot about the technology. and John has, you know a lot of skills and technology, and then we also like I really wanted it to speak to both public and academic training. And again, a lot of the textbooks are really oriented towards academic training, and our students um, are going out and having a lot of different kinds of jobs. So, so between John's and my own experience doing field work or expertise, kind of the things we think about a lot, you know, we we could really complement each other in terms of. Technology, also types of projects. And we've done a lot of field work together, but also separately. Um, and so it seemed like it would be a much stronger product if we did it together rather than than um, me just doing it alone we should mention for the readership or the people listening if you don't know john and i are married which we do say in the book but um we 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 like to just say that up front so that it doesn't become very confusing about why we are talking about the same experiences and the same children and things like that
0: i'll just add that when lisa who came up with the, the book idea proposed it um she very much proposed it, it as like I want us to create the book that I could use to teach the class, right? And and we also were very attentive to we wanted the book to be practical and useful. We didn't want it to be mired in theoretical debates over positionality or you know the stuff that that I got a lot of in my fieldwork training in my degree. Um, not to say that stuff's not important, but we wanted this to be about a fieldwork project, like planning from beginning to end, thinking about What's the use of your fieldwork? How does that connect to the kinds of documentation you're gonna to wanna to produce? If you're doing something that's all in a visual cultural form, you should consider photography and, and video, but you should also consider other ways to document um, that, 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 that help your project along. Again, whether your project's community driven um, or whether it's because you're doing a dissertation. like So we tried to make something that was holistic in its approach and was very useful um, for teaching, but also for practitioners out there in the field who aren't involved in any kind of academic enterprise.
2: And, And we do talk a lot about positionality, but the idea was to talk about it in a very practical way. So rather than a lot of the... A lot of the readings that exist out there really discourage students because it's like, oh, my goodness, ethical issues are so massive that there's no way I can ever do that. And so we try to write to address a lot of the ethical issues and to kind of thread them throughout. And we have some sections that are devoted to that, but approach it as, yes, you have to think about positionality. So how do you think about that? And then how do you manage to do your project with who you are and who the people you're working with are? So still dealing with the issues, but in a less theoretical way and a more practical. I don't, John, I don't know if you agree with that.
1: Absolutely. I think it's great. Uh, this is something, having tried to teach Chinese oral and performance traditions for many years with no textbook and just trying to introduce introduce some of these second and third year undergrads to really advanced research in the field. It can be really, it's it, it, it is... It is too much. Absolutely. And actually I've already in preparing this, I've been so impressed. I've I've recommended this book to my PhD students who are preparing to do their first field work, because I think it does sort of balance that really practical um, that bit extremely well. So, uh, and I guess within that, so you've divided the whole book into sort of three parts, uh, preparing for the field, being in the field, and then after the field returning from the field. Uh, and I guess with this part one, preparing for the field, you're sort of, uh, I wonder if you could discuss some of the chief challenges that you identify uh, in this section, anything that you'd like to highlight in it. Um, yeah,
0: this this was a, a good one to conceptualize because there is so much that goes into a fieldwork project, right? Um, and again, we are trying to think from so many perspectives and account for so many facets of what undertaking fieldwork might mean, from short-term contract field workers working in the public sector to, again, people doing you know the traditional year-long fieldwork for a dissertation, to people who are starting a new project in the sort of later phase of their career. There's so many things you have to think about. Um, and so we kept reordering the sections and, you know, oh, if we're gonna talk about this, oh, we have to have already talked about that. We have to talk, so that was one of the big challenges is, is how do you pin down and put in a linear book form something that is really happening in multiple timeframes and, and sometimes all at once. Um, and we tried to articulate that from the perspective of planning a fieldwork project um, so that it made sense, right? So that it was useful to people. Um, and I think that so it's a challenge for us, recognizing it's a challenge for the reader as well to to track through this first section and not get totally overwhelmed, but be energized.
2: Yeah, and I think throughout we there's just a lot of we are giving you this in this order, but you know remember that you don't have to do it in this order. I think I remember writing a sentence like that, like you know, a couple times per chapter. And you know, this is just we have to tell you it at some point, so we're telling you now. At the same time, it's like some of the things that we were like obsessive about was metadata because you know I have so much experience with my students and just ignoring that detail or the field notes. And i um, just be like, I don't know, I'll figure that out later. I'm like, no, you have to write it down every single time you do anything. I mean, I have to yell at myself. And so there were certain things like that where we were just like, we're just gonna put this everywhere we can imagine putting it so that it's really reinforced. Um, but yeah, it was, there's there's a lot and it's, it is very overwhelming.
0: And there's a lot of signposting in that regard. Like you, this will come up later in the book and it's important to understand that now, maybe if it doesn't make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that was kind of a, and again, that's a challenge of doing fieldwork too, right? It's sort of, there's a, there's a kind of weird um, match there. I will say that um, since Lisa emphasized that the technology part early on updating that, one of the challenges for a book like this is, As soon as you write about a certain kind of technology, and then the book is published, that technology is essentially outdated, right? Especially with digital stuff. And we tried to capture that in the description too. Things move so so fast. Documentation technology is driven by for-profit companies who want to capture a market, right? They're not listening to the needs of the field worker. Um, Right. So things, even things that are standard, don't say standard for long. So we tried to like really talk through the principles around technology rather than name this is the technology to use. And I think that's a challenge for field workers as well.
2: And we thought about that a lot because we realized a lot of people really would like to be told, go buy, you know, this recorder and this is how you set it up and, you know, just given some very basics to get high quality recordings and so we, we kind of went back and forth and then we were like we just can't we it's just you know it, it's we don't want to be talking about the tape recorder when people are, are um, doing work with very different technology. so that's definitely a big challenge And then we also really tried to like we talk a lot about technology throughout it but we also just really wanted to emphasize that the the heart and soul of ethnographic field work is the human interaction and the relationships and so we also didn't want to get so caught up in the technology Um, you know knowing like a lot of my students are always like i'm so stressed out i haven't done any field work yet and they will have gone to events they will have met people they will have eaten food with people they would have done all sorts of things but they haven't like documented a thing and then they're like, "Oh my goodness, I'm so behind." And then I listen to them, and I'm like, "No, no, no, you are not behind at all. You know, you are doing. Ex- you have so much knowledge now that you didn't have before." Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another challenge is like, you know, talking about the technology and the importance of documentation, while at the same same time really emphasizing that that human part of what it is that we do.
1: Absolutely, and I think I, I really like sort of the the twin emphasis in what you just said between sort of not getting bogged down in the gear, as it were, and uh, being flexible to the fact that fieldwork is an is emergent process, right? And so things are going to change. I'm thinking back to a lot of my own research, and certainly if we were to do this in a linear fashion, which the book has to be linear, but you you try to show that it's not, yeah, it would be much more a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do situation if it had to be linear. Mm-hmm. Completely. Um, so... No, I, I think that's really good. Um, so I,
2: think I want to just add something funny in there too, is that one of the, like we we're writing, There you know, like funny things come up. Like when I think about planning for field work, one of the biggest things I focus on are bags. Like I just need so many different kinds of bags, right? And it's like, I need a bag that if I have to be carrying my camera, but that I can also reach a battery and my money and my phone at the same time. But I need a bag to do, like, it's just, there was a lot of funny things where we're like, how do we explain like, the need to really think through bags you know like that seems very very trivial at the same time as if you're in the middle of doing field work and this is me all the time i got things falling out of one bag and falling out of another bag and i've got straps all over the place <laughs> so that's just a funny little detail
1: that's great no i mean bags and i mean with gear i i I often think that maybe blogs are the best source for that, right? I mean, because Doug Boyd keeps his stuff very up to date. Andy Colavos at the Vermont Folk Life Center. So whereas a book, John, as you said, it will very quickly go out of date. A blog can be updated quite quickly to to compensate for that. So um, well, that's great. Um, So part two then moves to sort of in the field. And again, not as linear as it looks, perhaps. Uh, maybe in an ideal world, it would be, but certainly in my life, just, I found my project while I was in the field and found funding while I was in the field and these sorts of things. And I imagine I'm not alone in that. Um, So sort of, maybe you can talk us through, I think, I think when people think about a fieldwork methods class, they really think about reading about the in the field side of stuff. Um, And I'm wondering uh, if you could sort of talk about Maybe where you think this is this book, maybe differs from some of what's come before on that side of things, on the on the in the field side of things.
0: I have some thoughts on that, and and this is something Lisa and I talked a little bit about that sort of you know pushed uncomfortably close to theory while we were trying to plan out this very practical book. Um, how do you define a field? Right, it's like an eternal question. But as we were looking at so much digital ethnography and virtual ethnography, and the kinds of ways that, as Lisa mentioned early on in this chat, the way we use email now to, to get into the field, to set up contacts, like the way we use WhatsApp or social media sites to start to do field work even before you start to document something. And so we, we started grappling with, and again, in that first- chapter in the section the research settings like where are you going to be doing this kind of stuff how does that align with the 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 group you're working with the kinds of cultural practices you're interested in exploring in your research or documenting um so that was something that we talked a little bit about beforehand and without trying to say the field is this or the field is everything staking out parameters (laughs) for for readers of the book to really start to think like oh this is my field is multi-sided or my field is my neighborhood you know what what is what is that what comprises the field is something we thought about
2: yeah and i have a couple of things thoughts um i mean one is the the preparing for the field i think one of the important chapters is the developing a project um i, I realize we're in the next part of the book but just to backtrack for a moment and you know really trying to explain a process of anticipating a, you know, a research question and some sub questions so that when you go into the field, you have something guiding you and you have something to explain to people about what it is that you're doing there, knowing that it's very likely that that that's going to change once you're there, but that you have something that is, that is kind of grounding you in terms of what, what you are doing. Um, and then you kind of go back and forth and back and forth. So if you start doing something different, you kind of look at your plan and you say, oh, I'm doing something different now. Let me let me kind of rethink that now and put it on paper. What am I doing now? This is a little bit different. What do I need to do to do this different thing? And then, you know, so that you... Because I think so often my students go and they end up coming back and they're like, I got all this stuff, but I have no idea what to do with it, which is a very common fieldwork experience. But... You know, trying to kind of talk through, like you kind of um, keep, keep re, re, revisiting making a plan so that you are sure to be doing what you need to do to answer whatever the research question is or the research goal is at any given moment. So if you switch gears completely and you just start like, I'm just going to talk to everybody I can possibly imagine about food, and then you get home and you realize, oh, I didn't really think that through. I needed to talk to the grocer too, right? But like, if you kind of think, okay, what is it that I'm trying to find out about food? Who do I need to talk to or what do I need to do? And then you do that, but then you may do something completely different. So it's like kind of being flexible, but with a structure like that, kind of a dialogic process. Um, And then I think, you know, one thing I think I really tried to do was talk a lot about things like power And positionality and identity and issues like, you know, I think um, some people have have taken me to task a little bit on the sexuality part, like acknowledging that people sometimes develop relationships with people in the field and that can be strategic and a way to be accepted and sometimes those relationships can, and, and a way to, you know, get access to stuff and sometimes, and just loneliness and partnership and whatever, but sometimes those relationships can be a little bit exploitative. Sometimes they lead to something long-term, but, you know, like just talking about that stuff. And I feel like it's, um, I feel like in the field of folklore, a lot of the, you know, the textbooks of which were produced um, some time back, there's a lot of romanticism. Like we're doing folklore with nice people who are creating wonderful things and we're going to be chummy and nice and hang out, right? Whereas I think we try to kind of de-emphasize that romantic part. And talk about it as, as you know, really thinking about some of the ethical implications at the same time as kind of walking people through what would happen. Um, I think another thing that we tried to do is also like recognizing, like putting into writing things that don't really sound like methods. Mm-hmm. You know, like I talk about informal conversations with people. And you know we all when we do field work that that's where we get a lot of our information but we don't think about it as method and so i thought it was helpful to think about it as method because there are ethical implications but there's also strategies and ways of doing that and there's ways of communicating to people so they know that that's what you're doing so you're not like you know going off and taking notes on a conversation you have with somebody where they think it was you were just talking, and you think it was field work, you know, to make sure that it, you're, you're above board in terms of everybody understanding what you're doing, your friends, you're hanging out, but you're also always doing participant observation. So I think, you know, kind of um, pointing to some of those types of, of um, strategies as strategies, um, you know, I, I, we're certainly not the first people to do that. But I mean, I, I think that, that that was an important part of what we did.
1: Absolutely. It's not, it doesn't just need to be about documentation, I guess. Um, I really liked your comment about sort of the developing a project uh, section. And I guess, and that is part of in the field as well, because it is that sort of iteration of your of your project, right? You need to continually be reevaluating where you're going. And I guess, uh, Lisa, I guess, uh, for you, I'm, I'm curious, how do you, balance the prescriptive and the descriptive particularly when talking with students sort of the, I mean because some people by nature are just going to be more flexible and they're just going to sort of go and hang out and they'll get all the information and they'll tease out some threads through that and other people really need a little bit more of that the firm hand that a that a uh Properly defined research project and a and a prospectus or something might give. And so how do you mm-hmm. how do you sort of balance that both in the writing but also uh, in your own experience?
2: Are you thinking in like teaching or or my yeah. own projects? I, I mean, mean I however my, you want to answer it. With my teaching, I've taught you know a lot of master's students, some PhD students, but um, a lot of my focus has been master's students, and so I insist on a proposal. I mean, oftentimes that's required in our program, but I kind of am a stickler and really make people (laughs) write a proposal, and I'm, I'm really persnickety about the proposal, and part of that is because I think that is an absolutely critical skill. If you don't know whatever your fieldwork style is, if you're very flexible and intuitive versus have a structure, whatever your style is... If you're going to be a professional you have to be able to write a proposal. We can't get our research funded if we don't have a proposal. We can't get into graduate school if we can't explain you know a plan for a project we want to do. We can't get funding as public sector folklorists. So, you know, I think it it's um being able to have some t- to create structure out of some very vague idea is something that we all have to do. And I would say in my own work, I mean, I am an incredibly um, chaotic, expansive thinker. And, and I mean, my approach to fieldwork, I mean, that just say yes business is like, I literally will just say yes to anything, as long as I don't think I'm going to die. And, and I you know, and I'll talk to everybody. I think John is much more focused. Like I'm trying to accomplish X. I'm going to do this. I'm more like, yes, of course, I'll do everything. And I end up with, you know, ridiculous amounts of data about way too much stuff. So for me, it's interesting because if I say, okay, like I'm going to go into the field, I need a proposal. I'm often just kind of like completely baffled. Um, But then I force myself. I'm like, okay, let me really think about what I want to do and why I'm doing it. And what's interesting is that I often do that, you know, or sometimes I do that because I'm trying to get funding, quite frankly, and and then I go into the field and then I find that because I went through that thought process, that that then shapes what I do. It shapes who I talk to, it shapes how I, where I go, it shapes what I talk about or what I document or what, you know, what kinds of events I attend and so um so sometimes i feel like i'm kind of forcing it but then in the end it's it ends up being very helpful and i have this funny thing that is just me i shouldn't admit this publicly but i i have epiphanies and i'll i'll be working on a project and then i'll have an epiphany i'm like i just figured it out i know exactly what i'm doing now i know why this is important and i'll write that down and i'll be so excited And then like, fast forward a year later, like a long time later, I'll have an epiphany and I'll be like, I figured it out. This is actually what I'm doing. And, you know, like nine times out of 10, it's the same epiphany. And, and I'm like, wait a minute, I thought this is brand new. Like, and then I'm like, wait, I thought this a year ago. Why don't I remember that I thought this a year ago? Why do I think it's different? And I think it's just because I'm doing, I tend to do a lot. And then, and so what, you know, I mean, this is kind of, a funny thing, again, to admit is like if I start having the same epiphany, I'm like, oh, that must be what this project is really supposed to be about. Right. That's that's what the data, you know, I'm using data very loosely, but that's what my participant observation experience is really bringing to the fore as being important. So I, you know, I think of it as like I have my structure, I got my plan, I get expansive, I go back to my structure and plan, I get expansive. Um I do that in the fieldwork process. I also do that in the process afterwards when I'm trying to do something with it.
1: I don't think you shared anything particularly shameful there. I think we all go through it. Um, Certainly, I I have had multiple times where I think the same thing and then found out I already wrote it in some document and then come back to it. So um, I do think maybe that's just how minds work, particularly in the field when you have so many different inputs coming in and. One thing that you might, one fantastic realization you might have one day, particularly if alcohol is involved, in my in my case at least, um, you know, I'll remember it one day, and then a week later it's gone, and I come to it a year later. So, um, but yeah, no, I think I think that's really helpful. That's really great. Thank you. And I think I do the same thing with my PhD students. It's I I demand proper proposals where maybe I haven't always done it for myself in the past, except now I am doing it for funding. And so it is, It is, yeah, you have different stakeholders that you have to speak to and, and figure out how to work with. So that makes sense. Um, John, moving to part three, I remember hearing your colleague at the Library of Congress, uh, Guha Shankar, talk about the field worker as the first archivist. I don't know if that's specifically his quote, but he's the one from whom I f- f- heard it first. Um, and this seems to sort of be one of the foci of part three, uh, which is after the field. And so uh, can you talk a little bit about this section uh, and Lisa talk a little bit about this section after the field and maybe this seems to be where in my mind, the the divide between academic and public folklore perhaps comes through strongest in the book. So wow. how do you, maybe how you navigate that?
0: Yeah, that that phrase is is definitely a sort of mantra we have here at the American Folklife Center, right? <laughs> uh, you know, because the people who are out there doing the work are the ones who are going to have at hand the names, the dates, you know, the who, what, when, and where. That doesn't always make it into a photograph <laughs> or even onto an audio recording, right? So that's the metadata. That's the important stuff that you should start gathering in the field, um, as Lisa already mentioned. Um, so. When we first started this book, I was still a faculty member at the University of Oregon. Um, and wh- as we moved through writing it is when I then shifted to take this job at the American Folklife Center. So necessarily, I was really attuned into what all this sort of management of the stuff after you do all your field work, if if that ever ends, indeed, right? and sometimes it doesn't um how that figures in into the the um the sort of preparation and preservation of the materials so um that thinking was foremost on my mind and, and lisa and i talked a lot of, a lot about this um, i'd also been heavily involved in a project at the university of oregon called china vine right what we were doing with this cultural documentation the project was coming to an end and we were shifting it into a digital archive held by the UL libraries where we wanted to make sure all the stuff was accessible and available especially all the raw materials that hadn't been used in any of the kind of educational access production stuff that had gone up on the China Vine site. So here and now were thousands of photographs, right? We needed to have keywords and the the sort of metadata that that pulled them all together. So I had been kind of working on that in multiple multiple domains. Um, And that really went into, you know, especially the sort of kind of the the, maybe the first and the fourth chapter in this section. Right. But but it bridged the route for sure. and and i will say that like this is something that um i mean i remember going in doing my own field work in Malawi for my dissertation and just having all these notebooks with, you know, I had 43 rolls of film that I brought with me to take photos for a year. Um, you know, and I was just writing down frame one through seven is was on this date in this location, this is what was going on. And I still have those notebooks, right? And so when I gave my stuff to the Archives of Traditional Music at IU, I was able to give them a lot of that sort of metadata. Um I do it now in a very different way. I think you know spreadsheets and that kind of thing, but it's still that same practice. So I think it was both sort of understanding it from a professional perspective and understanding from from a practical experience perspective too how valuable that is. Um, and and I'll say you know to, to your point Tim about the sort of interface of academic and public sector, um, especially in, in this section, you know it's it, it's important for any field worker to be able to to articulate. And, and pass along the metadata from their collections, especially if they're putting them into an institutional repository so that they're discoverable and accessible later by someone who wasn't there. Um, and I think that was kind of the big thing that we wanted to pull together um, uh, in this chapter and and explain why that's important for you know so much academic field work well, or this is the the proverbial story. Sort of sits in shoeboxes and closets, right after the project's done, um, until years later, either the academic or their heirs are like, "Ah, let's get this stuff out of the house. Let's give it to, name your name your repository." <laughs> sometimes it comes with metadata. Sometimes it doesn't. That's as valuable as the public sector documentation that often comes with a lot of metadata because it's project driven. It's usually short term. you know, it's, you know. So so again, we wanted to kind of explain how that practice. Of managing your information up front is is really useful across the board.
1: That's great. Um, now, in this section, one of the things that really, st- or in this, in part three of the book, one of the things that also stood out to me is that you have the ethics chapter here, um, and certainly, and it feels like from an from an academic perspective, you would need to sort of go through that in the planning stage rather than in the afterwards stage. Um, but one of the things that really stood out to me is there's sort of this, we're in a moment right now where we're sort of questioning, uh, particularly in folklore, but also I think anthropology is going through this, the, the place of anonymity and, and pseudonyms. I know, uh, I remember what Henry Glassie in passing the time in Bali Manon talked about murdering people with anonymity. But then more recently, just this past year, uh, anonymization has received critical attention in a special issue of American Ethnologist, and I was just wondering if you guys could talk a little bit from your perspectives. I mean, from the the competing, potentially competing perspectives of uh, public folklorists or archivists, and uh, and more sort of in this academic world, how do, how do we where where might we land on the question of anonymity, given that it seems that institutional review boards sort of demand it in many cases. And how do we how do we place that?
2: I just submitted an IRB last week, so this is topmost on my mind. Um, and nicely, they don't actually insist on anonymity. You, I think a lot of people misunderstand the questions because there's all these questions about how are you going to how are you going to maintain confidentiality? And all you have to say is, I am not going to maintain confidentiality if people are willing to give their names. And I think that people get kind of tripped up on that. Like I've been answering that question for many, many years. Um, But I think that the, um, you know, I think that the, it really, really, really depends on the type of project you're doing and what the goals of that project are. And, you know, I've had so many different experiences with it and also so many different feelings about it. Um, you know, my first book that my dissertation was based on the dance of politics, something like performance, gender and democratization in Malawi was a study of women who dance at political rallies in um, and the study is really about the role of dance in politics, but also about gender inequities and class inequities in the country. And so it's very much a political and sociological analysis of, of, of social and political hierarchies. Um, so it becomes very tricky because the people that I'm doing research with don't, they're not academics. Um, some of the, a lot of them are not literate. They don't really understand. They don't, I mean, they're, they're very smart people, but they, they don't—they're not part of the world the, that we are operating in. So when they say, "Sure, use my name," they don't necessarily understand that I might use their name and then say something critical about them, right? I mean, it's like—it's a very complicated space in terms of what what it means for me to use their name, um, especially if, for people who don't read um, or don't read English. Um, you know, fast forward to my project with the, with veterans, um, there, you know, a lot of people were telling me very sensitive things, and they didn't want their names used, but some very felt very strongly about have their names used. And so there, I could really rely a little bit more on people being able to make a decision that was informed, right, the whole informed consent thing, like, it, they they understood a little bit more about what the the implications were. But at the same time, Many of them, um, you know, we all change constantly. And so if I tell you something very sensitive right now, and right now I'm like, I really want this out there and I want my name with it, it could be that 10 years later, I'm in a very different situation and I would, I, I, I would prefer not to have my name out there, right? So so I feel like there's this, just is a very, very difficult question. And it's one where I feel like I always have to um, respect the desires of the people I do research with, but also take three three more steps and really try to think it through in terms of what I can imagine anticipating in terms of what the implications are and where where people might where might people might be in the future in terms of the names so some stuff is very easy i'm doing a project now with refugees who want more visibility with their art they want their names they the whole point is they want exposure right but they might not want their names attached to certain stories so i have to just respect that. Um so yeah, it's just it's such a complicated question and it's very hard to keep track of and it's very hard to keep track of when you put it in archives. Um you know, I think the public sector versus academic you know just I'll let John speak to that more, but it you know, we both it, it just really depends what the project is. Like what is the project? What are the goals of the project? What is the product? You know, like if you make a documentary film, if you don't use people's names, their faces are still there versus um, if you put on an art exhibit and you have no name, it's going to be a hard, much harder to link the person with the, with the name. So, you know, it's just, it varies so much person to person, project to project, and then very, very importantly, the format of the final, what are the, you know, the final products that are produced from the fieldwork.
0: And I'll just add that one reason we put a chapter with the title Ethics in the final section of the book is, you know, we signal ethics way up front too and planning your project and thinking about access and community participation and awareness. Um, it, it is a process, right? And it extends out to what is going to come out of the fieldwork that you do. Um, as Lisa just articulated, right? So so there's there's many facets to, to, to ethics in general in fieldwork, right? It's about risk management. It's also about responsibility to the people you're working with, which is clearly articulated in the the ethics statement of the American Folklore Society and the Society for Ethnomusicology, right? The first level of responsibilities to the people we work with in our field projects. Um, And I think everything Lisa just said speaks to that in so many ways. It also speaks to the complexity of it, right? And I think that's, that's why we wanted to make sure to frame it again at the end of the book. Like, hey, it doesn't just end when you get the form signed at the beginning of your field work, it keeps going.
2: And notice it's not that that's the only chapter about ethics. It's the only one that has the word ethics in the title, but it's ethics and final products. So it's really about those final products. And I will say that I think one reason for really emphasizing that is I can't tell you the number of times that I've shown up and given somebody a copy or given somebody an opportunity to participate in whatever the end products are. And they've said, Wow, thank you. I didn't really expect to ever hear from you again. Or I've never, you know, I've done this kind of thing before. And you're the first person that has actually come back to me. And I, have you know, I've just heard that over and over. And I know with students, especially, it's like, a lot of times they're doing a project, they get their degree. And it's like, Oh, thank goodness, I have my degree. Now I'm rushed. I'm I'm crazy busy. I'm going off to do something else. Or you do it for a class. And so really thinking like, no, the relationship goes beyond, you know, beyond the project. These people, they they, they don't know, they they don't have the same timeline you do in terms of, okay, I I finished whatever it is and now I'm done, right? And I think for public sector, I mean, our, our colleagues who are really in the field, I mean, they are that's critical, right? I mean, they are developing relationships with communities, and it is absolutely vital that those communities, um, that the relationships extend beyond whatever the exhibit is or the documentation project is. Otherwise, they lose their credibility, right? I mean, the whole, it's like so built on that. So I think that, that that idea of relationships expanding beyond is just I mean, it's critical for all of us, but I think academics can more easily say book done, stamp it shut, moving on to the next project, I think. Um, But that happens for all of us, right? We're all really busy and we're moving from thing to thing to thing. Most of us are multitasking multitasking like crazy people like in any given minute, right? So so it's just a really important thing to emphasize.
1: That's great. Um, So that's sort of like the contents of the book, and we'll sort of come back to it throughout but i wanted to ask a couple more questions sort of going beyond it and one is uh so the book has exercises and tips and also supplemental materials that are on the iu press website if I, if i'm right so um and i was just curious i mean have you uh since publication have you used this in teaching and and if so has has this maybe have your uh thoughts changed based on any experiences that have happened uh, in in teaching or or in your own fieldwork since the publication of the book?
2: Maybe I'll start since I'm the one that teaches. But um, the I mean, I, t- to be honest with you, I changed jobs since publishing the book. And now I haven't taught a class that's just a straight fieldwork class. Um, I mean, I did one last semester, but it was project-based and um, virtual. And it was just a very different kind of class. So I used the book to be honest with you, because I mean, the, the book is so much my lectures that it's funny because I, for, I don't know, like it, it's very funny using my own textbook um, because I am kind of like, well, I'm saying exactly what you read today. I'm sorry that what you read came from my lecture notes and vice versa, um, but that's not your question. Your question is um, whether there are things that we would change dramatically. Um, I, you know, I... As, I mean, I think the the idea is that we're supposed to, you know, uh, revise this every now and then, and and you know, keep it up to date. And I think that you know, the big thing that has happened since it's come out is this 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 little pandemic we're dealing with, and that has been pretty as, as terrible as it's been for me. It has been really revolutionary in terms of recognizing how much field work we can do remotely. And I'm now engaged in this crazy global project where, I mean, literally right here, right now, somebody just texted me from Malawi that they're organizing a group interview for me and I just need to tell them the time and date for when we're going to do it. That I never knew I could do field work in Malawi from here. As much as I was writing about digital folklore, it never occurred to me that I could be in Silver Spring, Maryland, doing a group interview with refugees living in a refugee camp in Malawi. Like That wasn't an option. I mean, I, it's not that it didn't occur. It didn't occur to me to try to do that. I will say so. I think that that maybe that's like a really big change. And I think if we were to do this again, I think we might. I mean, when when we revise it, um, that's something we'll probably think more about is how to really take advantage of these amazing opportunities for for more virtual and remote opportunities. Um, I don't know, John. What do you think?
1: Well, I know John, you taught or you were part of some events at the beginning of the pandemic that AFS put on, right? Uh, yeah, I guess I was I was gonna sort of certainly move to you next, sort of about that specifically with the pandemic. Um, maybe you were already sort of moving towards that more virtual sort of fieldwork before um, um I, I had
0: engaged in some sort of distance field work i think i would call it right and sort of looking at some stuff um for my own project and so kind of had it on my mind but not i think not to the, the the level of depth or intensity that that lisa was just talking about too and that we've many people have experienced and so those those workshops or, or events you know panels that 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 we were involved with um sort of signaled the need that a lot of people had right people who were in the middle of field work projects and suddenly couldn't finish them or who were just starting projects and all of a sudden had to switch to can i do an interview over zoom and the question is about quality as well as accessibility and comfort right and so all those things come into play and so i think my thinking hasn't changed so much but the way we can articulate exercises or scenarios and any kind of expansion of this book has definitely um, become a reality, right that we can, we can say things differently, we can talk about more scenarios now than we probably could have when the book was first published about doing that kind of virtual field work, remote field work, distance field work, however we want to name it.
1: It's certainly more widely accepted now as a yeah. practice. Um, Well, that's great. Um, Those are sort of my questions. Uh, But at the same time, I realize we sort of really sped through what is a really substantial book. And I was wondering if there's anything you'd sort of like to say, uh, or or emphasize or bring up about this publication, because it's clear that I mean, a tremendous amount of time and effort has gone into it and sweat in the form of fieldwork experience. So um, yeah, I was just wondering if there's anything you guys would like to sort of emphasize that maybe we didn't pick up on so far.
2: I'm not sure that I've had too much, but I think one one thing that I think was really both fun and and um, interesting about this project is that between John and I, we, we just have done a lot of really different kinds of work. And I think I was kind of surprised by that, um, if that makes any sense. I mean, we're just kind of doing our thing. But when we really started to think about it, it's like we have done short-term research. We have done very long, you know, you know f- projects that have gone on forever. We have produced, you know, between the two of us, books and articles and essays for popular audiences and documentary film and multimedia projects and websites and physical exhibits and virtual exhibits and podcasts and recordings and... Um, and so it was kind of like you know I think because at first it seemed very daunting in terms of like how can we speak to the public and to the academic and this and that and music you know folklore and at the musicology but just because we're both kind of interested in doing stuff and we're kind of have fun experimenting and and whatnot it was it was kind of amazing how much we could bring into it from our own experiences um, and I mean certainly we can't speak to everything but we we've we also have a very good sense of how much we don't know, right? I mean, it's like the more you do, the more you realize you, you, you what what you haven't done or what you don't know. And so, um, yeah, I just thought I would throw that in.
0: Yeah, I'll say we wrote very much from the perspective of, of having done all this stuff, <laughs> taking stock of it and seeing what we can extract from it, rather than the perspective of expert field worker, right? I think that was... Um, and, and we also, we intended the book to be used. I mean, I imagine it being like ratty and dog-eared in someone's field work bag, you know, <laughs> consulting it while they're on a project. Well, what what, what was that thing I read again? Um, as much as used in a classroom, used in workshops, like we, we want it to be used.
2: And I think just from picking up on that too, is like, while I'm emphasizing that we've done all this different kind of stuff, we've never done it very well or perfectly or whatever right i mean i think it's like one of the things we really try to emphasize in the book is there's no right way to do it you never do an interview and say wow that was a perfect interview now i know how to do a perfect interview or you encounter somebody and you're like i did step one through five and i developed rapport exactly like the textbook told me to do you know or i wrote this thing and it's this perfect thing i'm a fantastic writer i mean that's like never i mean if maybe for some people, that's how it happened. That's certainly not how it ever happens for me, right? It's always, it's just always about learning. It's always about trial error. It's always about, you know, some things go well, some don't, being flexible, you know, picking up loose threads and all of that. And so, you know, I think we really wanted to um, encourage people and get people to feel enthusiastic and like, it's okay to do this even if you're scared about it, like it's going to be okay. If you get some information, that's good. You know, really try to be kind of positive and and kind of optimistic about it rather than making it scary and overwhelming.
1: I think it's great. And I think, I think from my perspective, you guys have done it. I think I can't imagine given how sturdy the, the quality of the, the, the actual book itself is, I can't imagine it being sort of a sitting in somebody's fieldwork bag for, for many a dusty, bus ride or something. So, um, well, we've, I've used up a lot of y'all's time today, so I really appreciate that. Um, Before I let you go, I'd really love to just hear quickly. What are you guys working on now?
2: Well, I am in the midst of, of starting a a massive project that I'm very excited about. So um, it's a, it's a project about arts initiatives um, started by people, migrants, displaced people, refugees in different parts of the world, really trying to counter all of the discourse about refugee crises and refugees as victims and vulnerable and um, or being a problem or violent or potential um, um, risk of violence or whatever in communities and try to um, both emphasize and bring forth stories of um, of refugees and other displaced peoples and migrants um, using art as a way to do something for themselves and other people try to um, tell bring more um, human stories um, and then really emphasize that the role that arts play in trauma and displacement in community building and bonding and pleasure and joy even when life is hard. So I'm working right now with a um, there's an amazing arts festival called the Tumayini Festival that happens in Zalika refugee camp in Malawi. So I'm doing, um, doing some work with them. I'm um, working with a, a Uyghur poet in Paris who's connected to a, a Uyghur language and arts institute. And I'm um, going to be going in March to Turkey, to um, Istanbul, to um, talk to some Syrian musicians. So, this is j- just launching this project. Um, I have a group of students at George Mason that I'm hoping can help um, do some of the, the get, get some opportunities to interact directly with some of these people. Um, so, really taking advantage of a lot of virtual and remote tools and also getting ready to jump on planes as much as the pandemic will allow.
0: Um, at the Folklife Center, you know, we're, we're constantly busy trying to produce stuff that, that provides access, uh, interpretive context for the, the rich ethnographic materials we have in our archives. So we do have two podcasts, uh, and we're continuing to produce those. Folklife Today is one of them, and America Works is the other one. Uh, they're both available at loc.gov slash podcasts, which is the main page for all the Library's podcasts. So... Um, those are, those are ongoing projects and then we're getting ready for our next season of our homegrown at home concerts for the past two years we've contracted folk and traditional musicians all over the world at this point to um give us high quality video of them performing at their home whether that's their backyard their living room you know somewhere nearby where where their their cultural practices emerge um they send those into us we put library bumpers on them and uh and stream them from the library's web properties so um, we will do the, ne- the next season remotely again, just to kind of keep everything stable for a while. Um, so we're reaching out to probably about 17 or 18 artists right now. And so that's really exciting.
1: Oh, that all sounds really fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to uh, see and learn more about all of these projects. Um, Lisa, John, thank you both so much for, for talking with us today. Um, and I hope you have a great day.
2: Thank, thank you, you Tim, much. so much for taking the time to focus on our book. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate your your questions.
1: That's Have my a pleasure. Wonderful day. Yeah, thank you.